0: We are live.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMayo. I'm your host. I'm here with my co-host, my partner, in all things law enforcement, the very handsome Bill Cannon. What's up, Bill?
0: Hey, I'm so looking forward to this. I just have to let everyone know that Bert Ross is related to me. He told me to put that disclaimer out. So uh, I'm not too friendly with him that if I got to bust his balls, I'm going to do it even though he's my wife's uncle and I've known him for 30, 30 something years. So he gets no play here. If you want to go in for the kill, go ahead.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess that we got a special guest tonight. This is going to be interesting. I'm very excited about it. Um, our guest at the age of 28 became the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey. And not long after that, um, he was offered a bribe by the mafia to build some property over there, Mall. and many more. And the rest is—he's uh, going to tell us about. We're going to. Uh, there was a book written about it. It's called *The Bribe*. His brother wrote it. Um, and uh, let's welcome Bert Ross. How are you?
0: Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Billy. Good to be here. You know, Bert, you, uh, Phil said uh, he's the much handsomer brother than you. I don't know if, <laughs> if you want to address that.
2: I well, since he's your father-in-law, I I would say absolutely (laughs) yes, and and his daughter uh, takes after him. uh,
1: I I know you. you, uh, Let's start from the beginning of how you even you you ran for mayor at a very very young age. Um, I know that this is we're talking about the 70s right now, and back then people got older quicker, but still uh 28 and and when you were first talked into running you were much younger than that you were 24 i think but uh, you you're educated tell us a little bit about your background
2: i was raised in teaneck in teaneck new jersey a suburb of new york city um went to a friend's boarding school in bucks county called george school went off to harvard um went from there to nyu law school never practiced law worked on wall street and then uh during my stay at Wall Street, I ran for mayor and was elected at 28, which was at that time the youngest mayor in the country. Wow. So, well,
1: what happened with Wall Street? Why, why didn't that work with you? Why, it,
2: it, it, I made money. Um, it just wasn't fulfilling enough. So I wanted to, to do other things.
0: You know, Bert, one of the things I just have to get out of the way because... This is an unbelievably iconic photograph, and I mean, this is like taking a picture with Mickey Mantle or Babe Ruth, and I'm going to put it on the screen right there. You want to tell us how you uh, came in contact with Dr. King?
2: I was president of the Harvard-Radcliffe Young Democratic Club, uh, and we hosted a great many speakers. Uh, Dr. King uh, was gracious enough to come to Harvard to speak, and I was his host. Uh, I, at the time, had a roommate, uh, T.D. Pauly, who... Was African American, I assume, still is, and uh, <laughs> I think he's changed. Well, you know, he can be on Michael Jackson. What do I, <laughs> know? I? Got lighter by the year. And we went to the airport, Logan Airport in Boston, to pick up Dr. King. I had this tiny little car, and I said to TD because TD knew that Dr. King and he belonged to the same fraternity. I said, "TD, don't start with the damn handshakes, the secret handshakes. This is Dr. Martin Luther King, the Nobel Prize winner. Come on, man." I introduce the two of them, and within seconds, they're doing the secret handshake. And I said, "I said, Dr. King, could you show that to me, please?" And he laughed and said, "No."
0: <laughs> you it know, was, as a as a white boy, I never understood how to do those handshakes either. You
1: you had uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in your car. At
2: that oh, yeah. you. it was more than that. Uh, after dinner, uh, he wanted before he spoke. Uh, He had an aide who came up to me and said, uh, Dr. King likes to relax a little bit before uh, he speaks. You have a place he can go. And he actually took a nap in my bed uh, (laughs) in the door for half an hour. And then uh, I drove him uh, to the train station. After his talk, we skidded on some ice and all I could see was Dr. King killed in car accidents at the very bottom. The schmuck who drove the car was a student named Bert Ross, you know. What
1: year are we talking about here?
2: You know, are, I think 1964, four years, uh, around four years before he was assassinated.
1: Wow, that's
2: unbelievable.
1: Yeah. How did that affect you when he was assassinated?
2: I think after, um, after John Kennedy's death, uh, it just was. We were all drained emotionally, and then, of course, very shortly thereafter, Bob Kennedy. Uh, it's just hard to process, even today. Um, it's just, it's just depressing to, to to look back on on things like that.
1: You know, uh, Bill and I, we, we both retired from the NYPD. Uh, we both worked nine eleven. I think we feel the same way about that. And right now, we're going through a period with the pandemic. I think uh, most people that are going to look back about this time. Also, too, not really. Um, but that that time that you lived through was, uh, like you said, you were numb almost. I would imagine.
2: Yeah, um, yeah I, I I remember all three deaths. Um, it was just um, just a horrible. I think all within a few years. I saw John Kennedy at a Harvard football game. President Kennedy, uh, two weeks I think before he got assassinated, he was below me. Many he had good seats. I did not uh nosebleed section and he he was smoking a skogie and the harvard band played hit the Road Jack and don't come back and there was no laughter from the presidential group so they immediately switched to hail to the chief and he smiled and unfortunately never came back
1: you know i actually had a uh, a chance to stand right next to uh, john f kennedy jr mm. we were filming something in central park it was like the first time i ever worked in a, in a film And uh, he he was just walking through the park, and the whole film shut down. Yeah, They all went, and uh, they they gathered around him. (laughs) Uh, He he, he actually wanted to watch the filming, but Mm. it was one of those things.
2: I worked for his brother Ted Kennedy. I was uh, Ted's first uh, summer intern down in Washington. Uh, And he was the youngest person in the Senate. The president was uh, only in office a year or so, so it was Hetty, I, re- I remember preparing something for him that the, that the president read on, on, on a plane going up to Hyannis, a report I had done. So
0: anyway. Now, Bert, let's get to uh, let's cut to the chase now. All right. So it's 1971. You got elected to be the mayor of Fort Lee at the age of 28 years old. And for, at the time, Fort Lee was a Republican city. It was known as heavily, heavily corrupt. Uh, it was corrupt all over the place. And you come as this young Democrat, 28 years old. First of all, how did you? How were you able to beat all those odds and get elected?
2: Well, first of all, I had a campaign manager. I don't know if that was his official title, but my brother Phil, your father-in-law, ran a brilliant campaign. We had—I had literally walked the streets. I covered every single house and apartment. Town of 35 at the time, 35,000 people. Um, there, there was a scandal in the paper about the uh, people in office. The former mayor had been a band leader, became mayor and and retired as a multimillionaire. So people had had enough. Uh, But Phil came up with a great slogan because people had been complaining about the high taxes and the high rents and and all these high-rise apartment buildings. And so the slogan he came up with was high-rises, high taxes, high rents, high time for a change. And I think Phil was high when he wrote it. So (laughs) uh, We brought in a tremendous number of young people, mostly from out of town. I basically didn't know where City Hall was. I I had a bachelor's pad. I was really living in New York City, but my parents were living in Fort Lee, uh, and that's where I voted. And uh, they walked around with a New York phone book showing my name in it. Didn't help them. We not only won, we won in a landslide. We carried 19 out of 20 districts. But what was remarkable Uh, about the administration, and I would say that this was unique before, then, and and after the number of young people in important positions. Example, I was 28. We had two councilmen. There were only six councilmen. Two were younger than I. The borough attorney was younger than I. The uh, prosecutor was 29. And for instance, I live in Malibu and they're they're terrific people on the council. There are five people on the council, but I think the I don't think there's anybody under 50. Uh-huh. Um, and think of the town that you're in now and, and your listeners. And how many people in your local government are under 30 years? And we had a tremendous number and, and important position. So uh, it was we were coming off the 1960s where we believed believed that young people could really. Make a change, and we did. We, uh, let me th- when you talk about corruption, let me give you a little example of what we're talking about, because the word today, is, especially in social media, is very loosely used. If somebody doesn't agree with you, they're corrupt. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a tax collector who happened to be head of the Republican Party, who literally hadn't filed an income tax in 10 years. We're not talking about didn't pay a tax, didn't file a tax. He went off to jail. The chief of police, I was quoted in the paper. uh, I said, I would like to know why reputed members of the underworld are frequent visitors in the chief of police's office. Now, imagine that got a headline. He sued me for libel. We asked him about certain members of the mob who had been frequent visitors in his office. He denied it under oath. We had six policemen sign affidavits stating who they were and how many times they had been there. He got arrested. We made a deal. He took his pension, and he was out. The uh, One of the major Republican players owned the biggest bank in town. All the city money was there collecting zilch, no money at all, no interest. So this is the kind of thing. I was also, it's a long story, but there was a major drug dealer who got off. He had shot up an apartment, resisted arrest, got off scot-free, and people in that town were taken care of, and I know it as a fact. Uh, so that that's a whole other story. It, that's a unfortunate- but that
0: that was the environment that you inherited when you got elected mayor. Yes, I mean the. So why why did they think that they that you would play you would play ball with them?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. That's a good. I think it is a good question. Well, they were desperate. Uh, The investors' funding, which was a huge public company, they had at one point owned the Boston Celtics, Ballantine Brewery Company, they had bought this land. I think they assumed that with the Republican administration it would get rezoned to their liking. Uh, They had a tremendous amount of loans outstanding with Chase Manhattan, and they weren't getting anywhere, and they desperately needed to, to dig the ground and get this. They wanted 3 million square feet of shopping, which would have, been a mall right near the George Washington Bridge. We're talking about where Bridgegate occurred, right by the bridge. And it would have created a a horror, it would have have created a permanent Bridgegate. That's how bad the traffic would have been. And they were desperate, and so what Investor's Funding did is they hired two members of the mob with a company called Valentine Electric, a wise guy company, and they said, look, we'll give you the electrical contract for $10 million, it's actually worth a million dollars. So they'd make $9 million profit. And so they were desperate. And when they came to me, uh, they weren't thinking of, of what I had done in the past. They they really were anxious to get this going, and they were willing. First of all, they didn't think they were taking a risk. When was the last time, seriously, you guys are in law enforcement, when was the last time a public official was offered a bribe, went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and offered to wear a wire? <laughs> The US attorney, the US actually attorney. Actually, the first time I'm
1: ever hearing of anything like this. The
2: US attorney, <laughs> what's well, a sad it's not a testament to my courage, it's a testament to the lack of integrity of a lot of people in public office. The US attorney said that he never heard of anybody doing that before. And I saw him a couple of years ago. He said he still hasn't heard of anybody doing it. Well, that's
1: that's my question there. Is like, do you know of anybody else who's done that? No. But the, but the
2: reason I'm bringing this up is that they weren't taking a risk. The worst that could happen is I would say no. And, that, and by the way, the first time uh, the, the, the member of the mob visited me, uh, he, he implied he was a, a little subtle. He said, what's, what's your favorite place uh, in the world? And I said, Martha's Vineyard. And he said, you know, you could live very comfortably for the rest of your life in Martha's Vineyard. That's called a veiled bride. Not enough to convict you, but you know that money is behind it. And that's when I called the next morning. I called the U.S. attorney. And I told him, no, I, 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 I'm very comfortable. I don't need it. But they kept they kept coming. Uh, they offered me at one point two blondes in the oranges. The oranges are, are a group of towns in Essex County, West Orange, South Orange, and Orange. And what he said is there are two, two gals who can make your hair stand on it. So now, and then uh, then they threatened me. They said, we know something about you. Uh, we're gonna make it public. And this was in a phone call and I almost broke my wrist hanging up on him. And 10 minutes later, he called back and that conversation was taped and admitted into evidence in the trial. So they they were desperate and they, you know, for nine million bucks, they got real desperate. And Chase was about to have their loans pulled. So you can imagine how desperate they were.
1: That's interesting. There's so many pieces to that, too. The Chase part is interesting. Because if Chase doesn't get this deal done, then they're probably not going to get the money that's owed to them.
2: They're worse than that. They're going to owe fifty million million. The bank says, you're not building. Give us the money. Mm. So that's... uh, When this all happened, that investors funding, which was on the uh, New York Stock Exchange, uh, w- uh, went bankrupt. I should have. I should have sold the stock short. <laughs> <laughs> I would have made so, my. So a Million dollars. When when
0: the actual, well, you had all of these people coming up to you. There was no solid offer yet. But so you went to uh, the U.S. Attorney's office, and uh, at first, well, you went, first went to the district attorney's office. They didn't want no, to do anything. No, I either. never. I
2: never. I never went local. The history. Okay. Of the U.S. Attorney's Office in those days was top of the line. You had uh, uh, Lacey, Judge Lacey. He became a federal judge. Had been the U.S. Attorney. He was a judge in the in this case. Uh, oh. Judge Stuart Stern, who had also been uh, the U.S. Attorney, and then Jonathan Goldstein. Uh, these were top of the line, uh, real solid U.S. Attorneys, and I not want to. I didn't want to mess locally. And I went to them. The problem is that there was a a great degree of skepticism at first because nobody had ever done this before. And so part of the issue also was that the federal government, because they report to the Justice Department, wasn't prepared. They had no protocol for an honest person turning states evidence. So they offered me. Uh, when I had a death threat, they were gonna put me up in a motel outside of Washington in a halfway house. You remember the Godfather when yes, they had yes, a guy at the halfway house and they brought his brother in from Italy and one yes, look and yes. suicide. Well, I'm saying to them, you know, that I didn't I didn't do something wrong. You should encourage me. They they sent me a bulletproof wardrobe and inside the bulletproof raincoat, it had it had not tested for ballistics.
0: That looks like one of those old NYPD vests that they gave out I can't can't
2: help but
1: recall um, Serpico because we're talking about the same time same type of situation you know he was an NYPD uh, detective and he was looking to you know expose corruption and nobody really knew how to deal with it nobody knew how to handle it and he he was uh, just people were just Closing doors. Well, so, I
2: he was a phenomenal individual. I I I'm not in the category of I think of Frank Serpico. I think uh, that is sort of the same story. I I think that what he the difference when you're dealing with somebody like the guy who played Don you know, the Donny Brasco character or, or, or Frank Serpico. They had extended periods of time where their life was really at risk. Um, I, I had a death threat, but I had a, a dear friend of mine who knew the mob. And when I called him up and said, Sonny, is my life at risk? He said, no, you're a mayor. They're not going to go after a mayor any more than they're going to go after an FBI agent or a judge.
1: Yeah, but the similarities of this is that you both could have easily taken the money Yes. Would have been no problem. And yet your your um
2: your moral compass said no. Yeah. Okay. And that in that regard, yes. Uh I love there are always cynics out there. Some people believe that I took the first half million and then got called free and turned down the second half million. It's a it's a wonderful country. We have people who 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 never can take something on its on face value. It always has to have a sinister.
0: Motive, yeah, you know, Bert. I had one time I was in Fort Lee with the police department on a job. I forget, we were looking for somebody, and I told one of the cops that I was related to Bert Ross, and he said something exactly similar to that. He goes, Bert Ross wasn't that honest, they just didn't offer him enough money. <laughs> well, that's funny
2: because uh, I was I wore a wire three times, yeah, and uh. One time we were in the, uh, it used to be called the Forum Diner, major, major successful diner on Route 4 in Paramus, which has since been torn down. And during that, uh, they are about to give me the $100,000, which is a good faith deposit on the half million dollars. And I start going for a million. And when the U.S. attorney calls me in uh, to do a debriefing, he is not happy. He says, What are you doing? This is going before a jury, and you're you're trying to, it sounds like entrapment. You're trying to get them from a half a million to a million. I said, Jonathan, first of all, I have some pride. I know I can get them to a million. And secondly, <laughs> it sounds real. And he says, Stop it. <laughs> so I stopped it. That part of the thing that's strange and, and is that. I was never part of a team I was their case ultimately seven people uh were were convicted and the jury it was a sequestered jury the jury uh, I think the trial lasted like two and a half weeks and each defendant was found guilty on five counts and I don't think that jury was out more than six um uh six hours which is ridiculous uh, when you think of what happened today um but the the I, I forgot the point I was going to make, so who cares? Anyway.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, folks, this is uh, Police Off the Cuff After Hours. I'm Bill Cannon with Mark DeMeo. This is Burt Ross, who was the youngest mayor in, in probably U.S. history at the age of 28. He has an incredible story uh, that was memorialized in a book called The Bribe that was actually written by my father-in-law. I admitted in the beginning of the show that I'm related to Burt Ross, Anyway, NYPD captain. Thank you much so much for the 999 Super Chat. All you folks in the super chat, uh Polyester. I love that name. Uh, I don't like to wear polyester, but uh I like that name. Dawn Marie. Factual breakdown. Of course, the pranzos are here. Mark Hirsch, you sound like you're a friend of Burt Ross. Uh Christopher, <laughs> Christopher Strom. Um Sergeant Peter Lavin. Sergeant Peter Lavin, Joanne Blazich. Good evening, everyone. Again, this is uh Police off the cuff after hours. We have Bert Ross on who is telling this incredible story about an incident very long ago, actually. It's almost 50 years ago, isn't it, Bert?
2: This November 2nd will be 50 years to the day that I was elected. Uh, I am literally the only living former mayor of Fort Lee. The three mayors who followed me have all passed. That's how young I was. They were much older. Um, it's strange because uh, a friend of mine said, why don't we have a reunion? And I <laughs> thought about it, and I said, well, that's that's wonderful. And I'm then I, Everybody's dead. I'm here. <laughs> uh, every, you know, it would be a reunion of, of two, three people. Uh, <laughs> but, good, but there is a good side to that, and that is that I can say anything about my administration, and there's nobody to contradict me. <laughs> so I want to be on record. You've heard it here first. Taxes were reduced 50%. While I was mayor, there were no traffic accidents. While I was mayor, no divorces, nobody died, yeah. and everybody was happy. And if <laughs> yeah. You believe that? You're my kind yeah, of. Yeah, a... you,
0: you should run for office now, Bert. If that was the case, I, you know. I. You know, you know what's interesting is that you
1: uh, you mentioned having uh, Martin Luther King speak at the college and 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 uh, at Harvard and being a couple of rows up from John F. Kennedy. And these type of influences, I'm sure, had um, a lot to do with this, the decision that you made and the choice that you made. And, you know, history, when we, when we take a, a step back and we look back at history, we obviously, even though they did phenomenal things, they were humans. They were They were slightly flawed. And uh, yet I, I don't see that in you yet. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where yours is. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you, you did you, you acted just, to, just like they probably would have, or we imagine they would have in those type of situations.
2: Well, I think you get your values mostly from your parents. Uh, I I don't think the issue was ever whether I would take the money. That that never to this day was contemplated. Uh the, the real decision was, do I report it? And I think there were a couple of motivating factors. One is it was obvious that they were coming back. They were not going to leave me alone. They needed this property rezoned, and they needed it rezoned quickly. So they weren't going away. And part of that was uh, when Joey called me and threatened me. He said, we know stuff about you, and I don't like being threatened. Uh, that's put. That's putting it <laughs> nicely. Um, you that you just I, I I you know I think we all have stuff in our DNA. You know you don't physically touch me and you don't threaten me and that's that's when uh, I didn't care what happened to him.
0: So and it was Joey D. It was that Joey Bag of Donuts? Who was that?
2: Yeah. Well, he it was interesting because when he came to my apartment the first time. Uh, talked about Martha's Vineyard. Carried uh, was carrying was carrying, which uh, normally you don't go to the mayor's apartment and <sighs> with a a gun. What he uh, said,
1: carrying? You mean he, he was carrying a pistol
2: underneath? He was, a he was strapped.
1: But I <laughs> yeah. mean, he made sure that you saw it.
2: I'm not sure he did or not. The, the thing that was ridiculous is one looked at him and he was he was mob right out of Central Casting. I mean, if if you wanted to make a movie, you just put him in. You put him in the Sopranos, he'd fit right in. I mean, he had a scar, the pinky ring. I remember the size of his fingers. The the circumference of his fingers were twice mine. Um, But um, at the very end, because he only introduced himself as Joey, when he left, he said, uh, we'll be in touch. Uh, You can call me Joe DiGiacomo. Now, when you say you can call me, that's an alias. And as soon as he left, I called the head of the Board of Adjustment, Ben Mazur, and I said, Ben, have you been approached by some guy? He said, yeah, there was a guy named Joe Green. So he was out, you know, with these um, aliases. At the first time we met, and I was wearing a wire, he gave me a card. And when I went back to the FBI headquarters and gave them the card, and they saw Valentine Electric in his real name, they were thrilled. Oh, we got a wise guy, and they knew the company, and they knew, you know, Major League. Um, I wasn't as thrilled, but <laughs> but that's when. That, by the way, it took all that time for there to be real, um, real credibility. You're never, you're not part of the team. You're you're going to be a witness. It's not like an FBI agent's undercover. He's part of the team. He knows exactly what's going on. When I left the diner, and by the way. I got frisked. I was going to go to the bathroom to tell them that I had gotten, that they were about to give me the money. And the, the diner was filled with FBI agents. There were more FBI agents in that diner than anything. He he starts to frisk me and I almost died because where I had worn the wire the time before was where he was frisking me and this time fortunately it was in my belt buckle, not up here. And so I go to the, the men's room. I check to make sure there's nobody in the stall. And, and there are two FBI agents listening in a, in a van nearby. And they have photographers out there with fishing equipment, but they're cameras. And uh, I whisper over the urinal, they're going to give me the money now. They're going to give me the money now. And I flush. And all these guys here in the van is Niagara Falls. <laughs> the sound is magnified. And, he, and I go out to the parking lot. He pulls up. He says, get in. He gives me an accordion folder with, by the way, they were nervous too because one of the developers was there saying, we're going to give it to you in 10s, 20s, and 30s. And I said, if you're going to give it to me in 30s, I don't want to do business with you. (laughs) The mob guy is a guy who is giving me the money in the car. He says, you want to count it. I don't want my fingerprints on it. So I say, you'll be hearing from me if you're short. I then get into my car and I drive. I want to make sure I'm not followed. They said, um, I said, what happens if they ask me to go with them? They said, go with them. We'll follow you with a helicopter. Fortunately, they didn't ask me to go anywhere. They did it in the parking lot. So I'm driving around side streets, making sure nobody's following me. I go to FBI ed- headquarters. Um, they count the money. They bet me that they'll be short. <laughs> they were wrong. It was exactly 100000 and I got $1.00. And a receipt from the FBI that I had received the hundred thousand dollars. That I had received the hundred thousand dollars. What am I going to do with the receipt? I put it in the icebox, literally. The but the they had like twelve guys. It was a memorial day. Twelve agents with plastic gloves, all counting. But the point I'm making is, I had no idea what was happening. If I had been an FBI agent, I had to go to a wedding that afternoon. And I finally reached Jonathan, the U.S. attorney. I said, did you arrest them? You've got everything. You've got the tape. You've got the money. He said, no, we have to send the money down to be, uh, to be looked at uh, down in Washington and, 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 and have to see how the sound came out. But I had to call them. I'm not part of the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one time I got back at them. Now, these are guys, young guys with families, the the entire U.S. attorney's office, and they're working 24-7. And about a day before the trial, they call me in, and you could see they are in panic mode. They said, we're going to ask you, Bert, we're going to ask you a a question. We want an honest answer, no equivocation. Were you in an institution in 1968? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you were uh, and,
2: <laughs> and I thought now now I have them by the Guyons. and it's my time since they I'm not part of their team they're not going to be part of my team and I, it's a long pause and they are dying and I said yes and their face that's the end of it, you know their cases I said I think you would probably agree that NYU law school, Was an institution. An institution. (laughs) They they wanted to kill me. (laughs) But the relief was so great they Uh couldn't. They started to laugh. I said, and you can check that out. And I said, what would happen if there was another Burt Ross in a mental institution? They said they would all lose their license law law license. Oh wow! There were so many interesting stories. I got called right before the trial. The judge was six foot five. He's in his nineties now. Honest, you know, tough Irish, you know, real, pure, tough, honest guy. Deep voice, and he called me. Somebody came and said uh, the uh, judge wants to see you in his cha- this is federal court. Now we're not, you know, want to, judge wants to see you in his chambers. He brought me in and he said, Mayor, you are not to enter my courtroom with the U.S. marshals who are guarding you. It wasn't a conversation. I said, yes, Your Honor. He was terrific, though. Uh, And uh, we had met a couple of days before in the chambers with the US attorney. And we practiced examination, being on the witness stand. And then he also said, let's talk about where we put the $100,000. And they decided to put it right in front of the jury. So when they do that, the lawyers during the trial go crazy, absolutely nuts prejudice, they get the jury out, and they're making all kinds of motions. And the judge says, well, I'm a little confused. It sounds like you have two concerns. One, that your, this money would be in better hands with your clients than with the court. Denied on that ground. The second ground is that it's prejudicial. It may very well be, but what we call it in this court is evidence. Motion denied. Jury comes back. When they would call me Ross, he would always address me as mayor. And the one time, one of the mob attorneys didn't like the answer to a question. And he went, Oh, come on. Judge bangs the gavel, says, Mr. Richter, if you don't like the answer, don't ask the question. It's not your job, isn't to decide whether you like the answer or not. That's why we have the jury. It was um
1: uh, well, was let's tough. take a let's take a, a quick break and 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 go to we gotta do a little commercial break. Also,
0: let's thank Gaspar Ramirez. Thank you so much for the nine ninety nine super chat. Also, the one Marie. Someone else gave us a 9.99 super chat. Sandra Rivera, thank you so much for the 9.99 super chat. Thanks, and of course, NYPD Captain. We're gonna to go to a quick uh, commercial right now. Uh, I'll go. I'll do the first one. Mark, you could do the. Um... Folks, if you're getting sick and tired of uh, the high taxes in New York, and you're tired of a lot of things in New York, and you want to move down south, Carol Waters sells real estate down in Myrtle Beach South Carolina. She was actually a bartender at the Fitzpatrick Hotel for 20 years here in Midtown. Her husband Rob Mayen was on the NYPD and then he rolled over to the fire department. Together they're a great real estate team down in Myrtle Beach. In fact, they they're in part of the million dollar sales club. So if you want to buy some real estate down in Myrtle Beach whether it's a vacation home or a permanent home, give Carol Waters a call 914 914- 261-6681. Or you can uh, email her. Carol Watersells MB at gmail.com.
1: Hey, if you're a fan of police off the cuff, you definitely know our get what I'm going to talk about right now. One of our frequent guests is Joe Murray. He's a retired NYPD cop. And he's also an attorney at law, a great attorney at law. He's got a practice right there in Queens, uh at uh, in Great Neck Road. Um, if you get in trouble. If you need a lawyer, if you have any questions regarding law, give, uh, give him, a, Send him an email. The phone number is there, 646-838-1702. Uh, he's a proud sponsor of uh, the show here, Police Off the Cuff. He's a, he's a frequent guest. He's our law expert, and he's a great attorney. So please, uh, I keep the number right in my phone. I call them every day just to check in. Um, I want to make sure it's the top of my uh, my my call list right there. So jmurray slash law
0: Bert, you know, I wanted to ask now. Okay, so you put uh, what was it, five to six people away for, for? I think they all most of them got like five years. One got maybe six months or something like that. What was your talk about the fear you had for your life and uh, how you dealt with that? Well, let me let me just. Amplify one thing, Judge Lacey
2: sentenced them almost all of them to five years. He went out on a vacation. They brought a motion before another federal judge, Curtis Meiner. Curtis Meiner reduced all their sentences to, to six months. Fred Lacey, Judge Lacey, was quoted in the New York Times front page as apparently my brother, my brother Judge, doesn't feel as strongly about political corruption. Uh, I wasn't concerned. Um, for my life after the trial. Uh, I really wasn't concerned most of the time, even before. I think the thing that was, there was a death threat, and uh, the U.S. attorney made it clear that he didn't want me going back to Fort Lee. Now, that's a perfect example where they don't have a protocol for an honest person in public office. They actually offered me the witness protection program. And I said, Am I, are you going to put me up in Malibu, which is where I live now?" <laughs> and they laugh. And and it would be like uh, Goodfellas. I mean, I'd be uh, you know getting. You know, you know, Bert.
0: Someone in the chat said, "Paul uh, Paul Grisanti says, looking forward to our breakfast on Sunday, Bert." Love he, the first thirty-six minutes. <laughs> hey, he, that is the mayor of Malibu, wow. and a, and a good man,
2: Mayor Grisanti, really good person. Yeah, uh, but and, uh, an interesting
1: point is this that. They're treating you like you were actually the the in this.
2: <laughs> yeah. They don't have a protocol. So he wanted me out of town. Uh, there was a primary election. I wanted to go back. And he actually, he said, he had met Phil, I think, at some point. And he said, let me talk to your brother. This is in the U.S. attorney's office. And he spoke to Phil and he said, get your brother out of town. It's the last place we want him. Uh you're the to- mayor right now. How are you supposed to be the mayor from out of town? Well, it was the summer. Uh, the trial was supposed to be in September, so for two, three months, the the we only met once a month during the summer. The council uh, and we have an acting mayor, uh, so everybody was fine with that. The problem was, and again, I'm not hearing from the U.S. attorney during the summer, preparing for the trial. I'm out of town, in hiding, under an alias. We'll get to that in a minute. And I don't know what's happening. So finally I talked to the, I'd say it's early July. I said, uh, you know, I'm a, a lawyer by education. This doesn't make sense. Your, your main witness and, and the trial's in a couple months and you haven't called me back. And the assistant US attorney said, turn on the radio tomorrow. I turned it on, the top of the news, four or five other guys got, one of the guys turned state's evidence, one of the developers, not the, not the mob guy, and implicated four or five other people. And then they postponed the trial to March. Now, you would think that not only would I go back, uh, I'll get to that photo in a minute because it's, but that they would protect me. They refused to protect a sitting mayor who'd done the right thing. They said, uh, we'll give you a bulletproof wardrobe, 'll we'll, we'll show some force at the very beginning but then you're on your own so what happened is that photo was me uh, uh, with the governor and it was embarrassing I came back by the way I grown a beard my secretary didn't recognize me when I came back it was hysterical and that's Governor Brendan Byrne and that's a state trooper behind him he had one state trooper what you don't see was there were us marshals on roofs rooftops it was a dedication of a of a police uh, building and It was was embarrassing to have that much protection when the governor did not. Um, After a short time, and the protection was you couldn't get into City Hall without going through a metal detector. There was a U.S. marshal sitting behind me uh, looking both ways constantly. It was the shortest. I, I guarantee you it was the shortest. The first time back was the shortest meeting in the history of Fort Lee or almost any other town. We, we adopted the minutes, pledged allegiance to the flag, and somebody moved <laughs> moved to, to adjourn. Uh, we were all sitting with with bulletproof vests. Um, then the marshals left. The Fort Lee police volunteered. Uh, the police then, we we started, when I was mayor, about 62 people. We went up to around 94, 50% increase. I uh, had a very good relationship with the police, and they started to protect me. And it was awkward. We'd go to a friend's house. They'd search the apartment. One guy would be out on the balcony. After a while, I said, "The town, the taxpayers, should not be footing the bill. I'll be on my own." And I was on my own. The only time there was anything that was threatening, that was slightly threatening, was somebody after, long after the trial, made some comments. I called the U.S. attorney, and they picked him up off the street, and they never saw the guy again. I'm sure they read him in the Riot Act, um, but I don't know. Anyway. What
1: was well, you the know, ripple effect? Ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, what was the ripple effect in regards to like you know because you have a picture there with Brendan Byrne, and you know apparently he was some because the Brendan Byrne arena, so we know that he, well, he, was, he, he was, was a governor. Uh, like, he, the ripple he, effect amongst other politicians, how are they looking at you? They must be looking at you like what the what are you doing? Yeah,
2: most of them, most of them did not like it. Most of them were were displeased with me. When I ran in a primary for Congress, they put me out of column. Uh, the head of the Democratic Party uh, at the time in Bergen County was ultimately disbarred for his relationship with the mob Billy Musto who was a state senator and I think maybe mayor of Union City which was in the district at the time uh, ended up in federal prison so uh, there were many mayors who were not very happy with me at all uh, look c'est let la <laughs> it's uh, interesting Brendan uh, Byrne appointed me to uh, to be the head of the energy office. I, I left being mayor. I had a four year term, and I left with three months to go. And became the they called it the energy czar, and was uh, quite quite influential in getting the state to pass right turn on red light, which is a whole other story.
1: <laughs> what was the other uh, office that you ran for? You ran for congress. I ran
2: for congress in uh, a primary. Uh, I had a great theory, and when I have a great theory, it's almost always wrong. <laughs> uh, in those days, most presidents got re-elected. So Jimmy Carter was president. He was running for re-election. Ronald Reagan was considered far right, and it looked like he would probably go the way of Barry Goldwater, who lost to Johnson in a massive landslide. And so I figured it would be a good time to run as a Democrat. Uh, fortunately, I lost the primary very narrowly, by the way. Uh, I was within 100 votes of Bergen County, and I lost – basically, I lost – I carried two two cities in, in Hudson. County, but I lost Union City by eighteen hundred. That was the difference. And there wasn't a single, uh, literally not a single Republican incumbent in nineteen eighty who lost. So the the guy who won went off and borrowed a ton of money and lost. He lost by forty thousand. I told him I thought I would have done much better. I would have lost by maybe thirty two thousand.
0: So,
2: Bill, go ahead. I got-
0: the the book is the bribe. You can get it on Amazon. And I, to, to be totally honest, it's written by my father-in-law. So uh, these guys, they, they could use some money in their, el- their older years, you know. So buy, buy Phil Ross's book. And it's, it was written uh, about his brother, Bert, who we have on the show right now. But one of the things, too, that's fascinating is that you got out of politics and you went into commercial real estate. And you were very, very successful. You want to talk about that a bit?
2: That's pretty boring.
0: <laughs> well, Okay. Yeah, I not, not, not if you like money. <laughs>
2: <laughs> are you telling me the people who are watching your podcast are interested in money? Well, I, they would I like understand. to know what
0: you did after you you, you retired from politics at what, such a young age, you are in your early 30s, right? I
2: started, I, I I bought commercial buildings, offices, and warehouses in Bergen County. Uh, I sold most of them and uh, did very well. I still own two a warehouse in Richfield and an office building in Teaneck. Um, but there's nothing soulful about that. It's, you know, we all make money different ways and I'm, I'm not unhappy about it. I mean, it, 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 afforded me the opportunity to live in a town like Malibu, which, which I absolutely love. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I don't, I'm not complaining, but, um, well, do you, do you go surfing every morning? Oh, actually we have a rented house (laughs) and we have a, if I weren't lazy, I could take this and show you surf rider beach. Um let I, me ask you, could I, let
1: me ask you a question about what's going on right now. Since um, I'm looking at the the time and all this stuff is going on and this obviously nothing's changed as far as corruption. Um what what do you think about what, what what's going on right now?
2: Can you be a what's little more
1: think, well let's, let's just talk about what, what all the the progressive movement because here's the thing you're talking to two cops right now. And, uh, you know, this defund the police, it really took us for a loop. And well, now, it, all of a sudden, it it it's, a moronic, re-
2: it's a moronic term. Well, uh, if you, know, you look the police at police, uh, is, you know, I'm sure you can find idiots who who espouse any position in the world. I mean, we even have a congresswoman who says that uh, the Jews are sending lasers from outer space to cause fires in California. I mean, so for to defund the police on a level on a scale of one to a hundred in terms of idiocy, one being the 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 a hundred being the greatest idiocy, that's right up there. <laughs> I I think intelligent people would like to see that it's done in a way where certain situations don't involve a police officer necessarily, Mm -hmm. Uh, or they're given the backup so they understand when somebody is having an epileptic fit or something like that.
1: Well, in all fairness, um, those are jobs that are giving at least to, to the NYPD and probably most departments. And when you're talking about handling people with emotionally disturbed people and you, um, those are jobs that are somehow given to the police departments, but not necessarily, um, Wanted by the police department, they, yes, just, and, and, and nobody yeah, else wants actually, to do it. So, actually, you're talking about yeah. reimagining policing, and I don't think there's a cop out there who would mind not going to an EDP case, yeah. But the problem oh. is all the other stuff that goes with it, and um, you know what I'm talking about. The, well, the yeah,
2: yes, I do, and I, and and again, I think the expression of defunding, which means take money, it, it sounds like do away with the police department. Well, any. Anybody who says that, you know, I was on a podcast once where somebody was against regulation. Governments, too much rev- regulation. I said, well, do you do you think any regulation is good? No. I said, so you don't care if somebody puts PCBs in the drinking water? Nah. I said, end the conversation. Yeah. So if somebody says, get rid of the police department. By the way, New York has just elected somebody. I don't know anything about them other than for the first time. Well,
1: they didn't elect him. He he won the primary. The well, in New,
2: York, in New York, my understanding is that you have to go back to John Lindsay, I think.
1: For, for... No, what I'm saying is that he didn't win yet. There's this okay. misconception that okay. Eric Adams won. He's going to be mayor. No, he has to uh, go against uh, Curtis slewa He he won the Democratic primary. Okay. And there's going to be a moment in the summer where somebody's going to ask him, are you going to hire more cops? And Curtis slewa is going to go, yes.
2: And if he doesn't say yes, he might not win. Well, my understanding, because I only, I know nothing about the guy who won the primary, other than I heard him for, I don't even know on what station, but I heard him for like 30 seconds. And he, when they said, what is your number one responsibility? His answer was protecting the public. So anybody who feels that, that as a mayor, there's nothing to talk about. So the funding, the police, Getting rid of the police force is a non-starter. That's not a conversation. That's that's uh, some idiots need to go somewhere and have that conversation. I don't think most intelligent people believe you should get rid of a. I don't think most people. Period. And by the way, in a in a liberal city like New York, in a democratic primary, the public spoke, and based on that thirty-second clip, they wanted somebody. You, know, you talk about the
1: uh, the the um, collateral damage that was involved in people coming to this decision, because we were on defund the police until every city had. Uh, we just had a hundred freaking homicides in uh, Chicago like over, Chicago. over a weekend. You know what I'm saying? Like, so uh, shootings,
0: hundred so, shootings, yeah. hundred shootings. Yeah.
1: So my point is this: it took all these because uh, th- now they try to flip the script and say. That uh, it was the Republicans somehow def- uh, behind the, uh, the, the 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 fund the police, and then they had to create a video to show every single person saying
2: everything has been marked. Everything I've never seen partisanship like it is. I know, and we have a health crisis, and we can't. I hope. I assume you've gotten vaccinated. Yeah. Yes, I know Billy had it. That's for my gigs, though. What? I had to do it for my gigs. Well. Well, how about doing it so you so that you won't die? That's a good reason too. Well, that's a good reason. Yeah, but I, I know. I mean, I, but listen, I have no
1: problem with. Listen, it, it, I think at some point, if you're an adult, you have to make your
2: decision. No, no, no. And here's the problem: I don't agree with that at all. Well, I, think, I love the fact that well, you don't. Well, wait, here. wait. Well, no, I have no problem with your making a decision so long as your decision doesn't impact my health or or the or or my loved one. If you want to go off and shoot yourself, that's your problem. You want to not be vaccinated and pass this on where we're going to have to close economies again because 45 percent of the country won't get vaccinated. Uh-huh. I, if I were president, you couldn't get on an airline. You couldn't get into college without showing proof of vaccination. We can wipe this thing out. Uh, and this has been made into a partisan thing. And this is horrible. Uh-huh. and. And police, you see, everything is being made into a binary choice. You are for the police, or you're for Black Lives Matter. No bullshit. You can be for the rights of people and for good, solid funding of police departments. It's not everything. Isn't a choice, Uh and <laughs> it just it, everything yeah, is um, Before,
1: not to go off track, but Duty Ron asked you. Uh, he gave a ten dollars super chat, so. I have to ask you, uh, Bill, can Bert squash my ticket in Fort Lee? Got I don't think it. so.
0: I think that's um, why he left Fort Lee to begin with. I'm going <laughs> to the, tell you uh,
1: something right now. What I love about what you said is that I love these conversations. I love um, I love debates. I love hearing other people's opinion. If it makes sense, I'm easily swayed. I'm not in one camp or the other. If it makes sense, I'm easily swayed. And that's what we're missing right now. We're missing Absolutely. conversation. We're Understand missing uh, a, a, an open gate for common sense and to change your... Uh, you, you, you made Mark, a
2: complete sense to Mark, me. Mark, you have... You're a police officer. If somebody goes through a red light, you arrest them. Well, I give them Mark, a summons, yeah. Well, give them a summons, okay. If they're... Now, is it... the the driver's choice to go through a red light or not? No, it's the law. Why? Because if he goes through a red light, somebody else is going to get hurt. So the issue when you have a regulation or a law, a prohibition, uh, a mandate, it should depend on whether it simply affects you or it affects other people. I had polio when I was a kid. I spent five months in a hospital. I thank God they came up with the vaccine five years after I had polio and my children got that shot when they were kids and they don't never got polio. I don't want my kids going to a school where half the kids decide, their parents decide, no, I'm not going to give my, it's my choice.
0: No, no. But, you know, Bert, there are, there are people that uh, – look, I got vaccinated. I, I I believe that was the right way to go. But there are anti-vaxxers. There's even people that don't vaccinate their kids for school, which I find to be crazy. Horrible. But, I mean, I don't know how – you know, I don't know if you want government forcing people to do certain things. Because well, well, that can the, look – it's well, just like Beto do or your, wrong. Do You want your kids, when your kids
2: were little, your little boys, to go to a school where half the kids – didn't have a
0: vaccine for measles? Are you kidding me? No, no, no. Of course polio? I would want that. But no, there are I mean, people, there are people that are anti-vaxxers, and it's fuck like them. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> them. I had as a kid, I had pneumonia, measles,
2: chicken pox, mumps, and polio. And today they don't have any of them. So let's get real. Everything isn't a matter of choice. If it impacts other people, Mark, you got young kids. Did you have young kids? Yeah, yeah, the, the twenty four and twenty one. Okay, when they were little kids, would you send them to a school where half the people weren't vaccinated for some of these diseases?
1: No, listen, I tell you, man, you bring a. Yeah, I, I love your argument. I I really do. Um, I, I this, and you're winning me over. There's a a, a couple of parts of me like okay. So for example, um. <laughs> How do we enforce this? Because right now we're talking about going door to door and asking people suggestions. Why not get vaccinated? Let's just say, what's the next level of that? Dragging somebody out of the house, shooting them. Uh, nobody's them. nobody.
2: Look, I listen. To, I'm just I, saying. Like, I listen to Tucker Carlson too. It, it, come on. No, I'm just. I'm, I'm giving you an. Uh, here's here's how you do it. I have a, I have a, I had it uh laminated proof of my vaccine. I have it. My Make I have it, my, my take. Come on.
0: You right, I have on. it in my phone. I, that's the Fun. way we do Perfect. things these Fun. days.
2: Fun. <laughs> uh, big shot. Uh, podcast. <laughs> right from another generation. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have cell phones. We didn't, it was amazing. <laughs> I, I don't even think we had cars when I was growing up. What the hell? <laughs> anyway, the <laughs> first car was $2,500. Anyway. the uh, it, uh, you In order to get on a plane, you show them that. Uh Otherwise, you stay grounded. Uh You want to go to a college? I guarantee you, without even knowing that Harvard has a system, and I would be amazed if I'm not talking about people who have immune suppression and, for medical reasons, can't get the vaccine. Well, I'm Uh, I'm I'm going to help your
1: argument here. And here's the reason why your argument holds water, is because we are going through... Well, at least in New York, uh, there's parts of the United... Listen, other countries right now are in... The Delta virus, the other one that came, um, it's, it's like it just never ends. Um, just uh, all of them, you know? They're dying. There are countries... I, I had a roommate from college. Malaysia is in... They just can't get rid of it. So we're, we're on a, a, a... We're doing well right now. But so I, we're, not, I we are, we're,
2: well, we're well in that we have the supply. Yeah. We're not doing well in that we went from almost 4 million cases down to 4 million vaccinations a day to 400,000. We are It's starting to become a trickle. But and the, I look every day. I look at a, at a site called Worldometer. I look at every country and then I look at every state in the country. And we're starting to go in the wrong direction. But yeah, good.
1: How much of it has to do with the fact that whether you like the last president or not, um, he's talking about uh, some lights and injecting shit into you and then uh, the pills that you should take? Both of those things, it turns out, even though he didn't articulate well, it well and it, it sounded like a moron saying whatever he was saying, both were trashed and both turned out to be. Uh, things that could help you if you didn't get sick. Okay.
2: okay. You go to your doctor, uh-huh. not, not Fox, not Tucker Carlson. Go to your doctor uh-huh. and ask that doctor if, that, if, if that's what he suggests. That's not what the president, the former president took when he was in the hospital. And he got COVID and was seriously ill. Maryland just recently announced that every single person who has died recently of COVID was unvaccinated. We're talking, and more and more younger before people. before the vaccination. So, there were
1: there, there were like you talk about the bipartite uh, breaking. You know, you can't get an honest opinion, and that's well, the it can.
2: You it, depends, it depends on whom you're willing to listen to. If you're, oh, willing yeah, to of course, listen, of course. It, you have doctors who have been in, in the in the field of of uh, these kind of viruses for their entire lives. Not they had some guy on Fox for 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 months. They finally got rid of him. Who I don't know. He was a gynecologist. Or he had nothing <laughs> to do with this field. Uh, so let's be real. If uh, the let's make life simple. If you get vaccinated, your chances of being hospitalized or dying are minimal. Period.
1: I hope so. <laughs> don't don't <laughs>
0: die on us, Bert. Don't I die on us, good,
1: Man, I love your uncle. <laughs> He's my wife's uncle. My your uncle in law. That's uh, what I am. Uncle. By the way, Billy is this good is guy. the way it should be. You should be able to have a conversation. Uh, you
0: know. See, I already covered this during I, Thanksgiving and other talks. So I uh, but anyway, Bert, we're at an hour. Your story was uh, fascinating. I want to thank some of the people in our chat, of course. Dude Iran, thank you so much for those super chats. Michael Thomas, thank you for your five dollar super chat. Uh, I got to go back into the whole uh, with duty. Run twice, Steve Cologne. Thank you so much for your 9.99 super chat, uh, Jesse S6. Thank you so much. Again, duty. Ron, you guys are hitting us up here, um, guys. We're we're really we're starting to grow. We actually in the last two weeks we added 3,000 new subscribers, and uh, we're hoping that we can uh, keep growing because we're bringing you some. Outstanding material, some great guests, such as Burt Ross here. We're doing some real crime shows, and people are really uh, catching on to police off the cuff. When we do our real crime shows, it's from a police perspective. I want to thank Duty Ron, who's helped our channel unbelievably, uh, pointing us in the right direction. Thank you, Duty but, Ron. Yeah, he's, he's, he's helped us unbelievably. And, you know, from a police perspective, you see a lot of these Internet sleuths that don't know what they're talking about and they just spread rumors on certain cases but we've done these investigations we know what's required in these investigations we know how they should uh, how they should be going and we give our real uh, basically a schooled opinion and we have other experts on the shows with us. so we want to thank all of you folks we have a website now policeoffthecuff.com if you really like this show, uh, first of all, subscribe on YouTube. Second of all, join our Patreon. We have three levels on our Patreon. You pay, it gets. You pay for X amount a month, and you get uh, some other uh, stuff that we don't give to everyone. We give other uh, uh, content, and uh, you you get to be part of the Police Off the Cuff family. Any final words, Mark?
1: Yeah, I just want to say, Bert, man, it was an honor. Hey, I, I really you? Tonight, and I got to tell you, man, I'm so impressed. Um, you you're the real deal. You're a, man's, you're a man's man. You walk the walk. You talk the talk. Um, And, and I admire you. you. Thanks Thanks for Thank your you.
2: for Thank you, Mark. And Billy, see you in a month. That's right. Do you have any you final
0: know. words to say, Bert? You want to say hello to Malibu? You want to say hello to Fort Lee? You want to say hello no, to Anglewood? No, I, I want you to give your, uh, your better half a hug. <laughs> I will do.
2: Be well. Nice talking to you guys.
0: All you uh, Police Off the Cuff fans, this is Bill Cannon and Mark mail for Police Off the Cuff After Hours. Thank you so much for listening, and good night.